experience and I know what makes me different. And I know that there comes a certain level of responsibility in society to act appropriately so that when the next person says, oh, I've met an Assyrian person before, they have only good thoughts and good feelings about the person that they met. Welcome to this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. As you can imagine, I am not Steve. <laughs> My name is Adessa, and I am thrilled to be a co-host, mainly covering the greater Toronto area. I think that this is an amazing project, and as soon as I found out about it, I totally wanted to get behind it. We have such amazing stories all throughout the diaspora, and so creating an additional media outlet for us to be able to learn about one another and connect is an all-around win in my book. Now this week I had the pleasure of interviewing the amazing Lydia Bitjonan. Lydia is the co-founder and COO of Setscouter. Setscouter is a film location scouting marketplace that connects film producers looking for the perfect set with residential homeowners looking to rent out their space for production. And you'll get to hear about Lydia's journey with helping start Set Scouter, as well as her experience being born and growing up in Kazakhstan, learning a little bit about the Assyrian community there, and how she rekindled her love for being Assyrian. Now, before we get to the interview, if you know someone who needs to be on this podcast, let us know. Or if you'd like to serve as a co-host, much like myself, for your particular region, shoot us an email at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to share this episode. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever it is, we love the shares. Share loud, share proud. Rate us and review us on the iTunes store or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. And I hope that you enjoy this interview just as much as I enjoy conducting my first interview. So Lydia, talk to me about what Set Scouter is and how it came to be. So Set Scouter, you want to think about it as the Airbnb of the film industry. So what you have is residential homeowners being introduced to producers and media companies that are making commercials, music videos, and things like that. So if you've got a home that you want to say make some extra cash on, you rent it out to a commercial. For example, this week we wrapped up IKEA in Miami. And, you know, you get paid a few thousand dollars, and uh, there you go. Your home's a star. And how did Set Scouter come to be? Yeah, so my partner and I, uh, it was actually my partner's idea, my business partner, Alex. Um, him and I met in university. We became friends. We both kind of bonded on the fact that we were in a media program, so looking to be directors, producers of TV radio film but we both bonded on this aspect that we really cared for the business side of things so after graduation Alex had this idea and at first I kind of laughed it off because I thought you know there's a lot of trust involved but this was the time that Airbnb was becoming really popular so we thought hey you know taking this exact same concept to film and tv makes a lot of sense mostly because finding locations has been a really difficult process. You know, people had to go door knocking, ask their friends' moms and say, look, do you have this beautiful modern kitchen? I need it for a shoot. So we kind of took that process and put it all online. Amazing. And said so you studied media in your undergrad. Mm -hmm. So how did you get to that point? 
Honestly, from like a tiny age, people would ask me, what do you want to be? I used to say, I, I'll either be an actress or I'll be a lawyer. And it seemed like the media world kind of brought some of those qualities together. I always was fascinated with television. So I wanted to be in the media. And I started at 16 volunteering for a local TV station, writing news reports and things like that. So I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I tried that out a bit. Then I tried being a producer of certain shows and working for production companies then I actually tried my own production company, which failed miserably. But after all that, I decided that, you know, it's time to have a business of my own that would deal with the media industry. And when you and your partner were looking into starting Set Scouter, you it based off of the frustrations you were having, or was it an accumulation of what you were experiencing as well as those around you? Yeah, I think any good business obviously comes from your own frustrations. Um, it's You see a need, and it's not just a, a perceived made-up need. It's something that you deal with daily. So absolutely, I felt the exact same um, issues come up. Of course, I worked in a little bit of a different structure that was uh, television and a lot of reality television, but finding locations was extremely difficult. And so, yeah, it was a need that we knew we could solve immediately. And we knew that they would immediately be clients because they were our friends. Of course, that had to expand. But seeing that immediate pain point was really key to kind of inspiring us. And I think that if you personally don't care for the business, let me tell you, it's going to be a long and hard road because you experience so much frustration with just the long hours and the commitment and everything that if you don't think it's worth fighting for and worth solving the problem, you're going to lose faith really quick. I can only imagine. When does that scouter start? So my partner started at first. He, oh gosh, like um, four years ago, four or five years ago, he started. He built a prototype. And then uh, actually what was happening was he was looking for some help from his friends. And he, I, I worked for a production company at the time. And he brought me into a meeting with like 20 other people. They were all our friends and colleagues. And he started asking questions about how he could improve certain things or, you know, at the time we were trying to solve the problem of how to get locations. And I am a very energetic person, so I immediately started to kind of give my two cents and saying, uh, of course, I'll be introducing you to people I know as well. And so what ended up happening was I just started attending meetings with him. And at some point he said, you know, I really think that you should become my co-founder. And it was a really scary proposition for me because actually I, I did have a business before that and it was a difficult experience. So he eventually coaxed me into it and uh, we got a grant and I was able to quit my job. And uh, that's kind of how that started. <laughs> I can just imagine a lot of that is a huge sort of leap of faith and, and not really knowing what you're going to step into, but trusting yeah. the process. Yeah. And so before you even got into Set Scouter, you had mentioned that you tried opening up your own production company mm -hmm. and you had said that that hadn't gone so well. No. So how did you even get into, you know, the idea of that and, and, and really and saying, I really have something in place and I want to yeah. be able to make something of it. I think sometimes we're actually lucky in ways we don't notice. So I think I was really lucky that I tried having my own company. I lived on so little money during that time. And it gave me, in the end, little satisfaction because it failed. And I think that experience was actually great because I knew that I could survive on little. And then coming from a family that I wouldn't say is a giant financial support, of course, my parents are incredible people who've always helped me, but I don't come from money. I think that helped. And I think that not having a cushy job after university also helped. It's all these things that are 
technically bad, but because I felt like I had little to lose because I didn't have much. So I think sometimes people get out of, you know, their post-secondary or even their high school and they land an awesome job that pays them a lot of money serving being an amazing example. You get cash in hand all the time. You get so used to that comfort that you're unable to take those leaps of faith that could actually pay off a hundred times more. So I think that the road to Setsketter was definitely not cushy. I worked in production. It's contract work. So you work really long hours. I was on set for like 14 hours a day, coming home just crying from exhaustion. But after having experienced that, I was like, oh, well, yeah, I can do my own business. Oh, I have to long work long hours? Um, okay, fine. So, so really, I guess taking from that, the you have very little to lose. And so that is what sort yeah. of brought you into it of like, well... Why not give it a try? Yeah. It can succeed. I think people should look at that as a blessing. Absolutely. Like, you don't have expectations on you, you yeah. know? You're just this dude or gal trying to make it work, so it should be easier, technically. And here you are in 2018, so now Set Scouter is in its... Uh, well, I would say fourth year. Fourth year? Yeah, going into fourth year, yeah. Fourth year. And so where where was Set Scouter and where is Set Scouter today? Yeah, so obviously we started here in Toronto because that was home. We are now in Toronto, Miami, Chicago, New York, and a little bit of LA. You know, we are a team of 10 full-time people and many more contractors. I've gotten external funding from Silicon Valley investors. Of course, we're always raising more money, but uh, getting that external funding certainly shows a certain level of product market fit, people recognizing that you truly are building a real business. So that's nice to have. For me personally, I, I grew up with this business technically. I kind of half joke that it took my youth, but 29 now. And when I started thinking about Satskara and at the time that it was introduced into my life, I was just finishing up being 24. So I feel like an entirely other person, to be completely honest. Like this business made me grow up pretty fast. You're growing with it. Yeah. And in that process, what were and what are really the challenges that, that come with being a COO? Uh, tons. Uh, <laughs> I think you have to have enough emotional maturity. I think that it's, it's just a big challenge to look at yourself with criticism every day because I think that in this position, no one is really going to tell you what to do. That's kind of the hard part, I think. I, I think having a job certainly is difficult and there are tons of jobs out there that are stressful and taxing but there's a certain freedom in not having to make your own decisions a certain freedom on relying on the higher <laughs> authorities to tell you what to do next but with this you really have to understand where the business is going you really have to understand the role you're playing in it you have to know your own character and in, in, to be able to work with other people at a level that is just it's impossible to replicate when you're an employee to be honest I could imagine there's a certain level of I mean you're essentially your own boss in a way as well mm -hmm. right so there's got to be a little bit of freedom with that but um you know at the same time <laughs> it's a lot yeah i was gonna say it's, it's, i can imagine it's a lot and sometimes have you ever found yourself where you're like i just would like somebody else to to make the answer for once or yeah. i mean i'm very lucky because uh, of course i have a, a business partner and a very strong one at that and i think that we do an amazing job of sometimes when things get difficult passing off 
some of our responsibilities to the other person. Mind you, there are certain things he does that I can't, and there are certain things I do that he can't. But in general, when things get too much, we can always rely on this other person, which is partly why I, I'm a big proponent of working together and having a co-founder. I think that the people who don't have one, they do well, but it's just harder. It's just more emotionally taxing. So... Uh, yeah, there have been times when I, I wanted to give away my responsibilities, and I did. And what I found is, for me personally, there's nothing that a vacation can't fix. You know, going away for a week, I come back, I'm like, I missed all of this. Lay it on me. Let's do it again. So now that we're in 2018, you have four years more or less under your belt with this company. What is the future of Set Scouter? What would you like to see uh, down the road in five years, in 10 years? Yeah. You've expanded so much already in such a short amount of time. So Yeah, so our plans are giant and I'm so excited about them. We are, you know, people need to sort of understand that production is not its own little industry. The media industry is taking over every other industry. I read somewhere that every company is a media company now. You know, you've got Starbucks making videos about people's lifestyles constantly related to the brand. So you've got YouTube, of course, and all that. So uh, this future of set scattering is closely tied to the future of technology and, and media. And we are excited to not just help with locations, because that's just the tip of the iceberg. What we want to help with is insurance, crewing, essentially taking your entire media process from beginning to end. You know, example being even this podcast, right? If you needed a, a specific studio to, to do it in, if you needed some help maybe with the editing, and you are a person who may not be, uh, you know, professionally trained, you can get that kind of support and help on our website. So that's what I'm envisioning for the future. You know, obviously expansion into other cities. We had requests just this week for Spain and UK where we are not open. So that was really nice. I know that the Russian market is very big with brands and videos. So honestly, it's it's it can become very large. Is there a competition with Zetscatter right now? Other companies who are doing similar work? Absolutely. Yeah. When we started, there were very few of them. And this concept was still fairly novel. Now it's being blown apart. And I mean, there is an Airbnb and an Uber for everything now, right? So definitely there has been competition. There are people coming into the space and um, they're seeing one side of the equation, which is sharing space. The fact that space sits empty and we need to do something about it. So there are tons of startups that will show you spaces for weddings, events, all kinds of things, which is great and actually expands the market. It's nice for them. But for us, our passion is really in not so much utilizing space, but making producers' lives easier. So for us, this business goes a little bit deeper into media production. So that's kind of the big differentiator. But it's always an interesting experience whether a new new competitors and you dig into what they're doing what are we doing right what are they doing right it's it's sometimes very interesting i'm sure interesting but i think it's important too that you know what what does set you apart from from your competitors and i think that's what gives you the edge that you have mm -hmm. what, what what advice would you offer in a student who has a business idea <laughs> right he has an idea but doesn't know how to take it to the next level yeah it's funny because I I hear a Syrian and in my head I go, well, what advice would I give anybody? But I do think that there are certain things about Assyrians that I think need to be touched on. You know, you would say to anyone, follow your dreams. But with Assyrians, it's a little bit harder to say. I really believe struggle is in your DNA. 
And I think everything that we've gone through doesn't help our psyche. You know, we are afraid so much of the time because our ancestors have had to really focus on survival more than anything. So I think of my own grandparents and I think of even my mom and my dad and so much of what they were doing was just fighting through the fear. And I think in this Western society and in the day, day and age that we're in now, sometimes it manifests into truly afraid people. Like a lot of Assyrians I'm meeting have dreams, are so capable, so insanely capable. They, they are talented people, but they're always being held back inside mentally. And it might look like I have to help my parents or I just don't want to disappoint my parents. I mean... But it happens all the time with the Syrians. And I'm honestly so grateful for my parents for putting this mentality in my head that nothing you can do can disappoint us. You know, there is no guilt. Do whatever you like. And when I said I want to be an actor, I mean, my some of my Syrian aunts were not <laughs> extremely supportive. But my mom was like, okay, if that's what you want, you're going to try it. And of course, it's not for me, thankfully. But that's what I really mean. Like, I what I would say to any Assyrian woman or any Assyrian guy about starting their own business is let go of the shackles a little bit. Because I think that there are beautiful positives in being part of our community and to feel the community within you in your own heart. But I think that there's certain negatives that come with that when you start to look at yourself as an individual and try to carve out your own dreams. You know, move. Um, go to another country, uh, take a risk, be by yourself, it's okay, they'll wait for you, um, and kind of like, uh, don't be afraid to carve out your own path, and maybe fail. Another advice that I always give to people who want to start their own business is learn and think hard, because I think people like to jump in and to say, look, I took the leap. Well, taking the leap is not enough. You've got to be prepared. So some people like to cut corners with a business because they think of it as a, being an entrepreneur is to be reckless in a way. But I am actually quite a bit against that. When we started our business, when I started a startup, there's a whole culture to startups. And I didn't even know what a startup was. So what my partner and I did is we read books. And every day we would tell each other about our prospective chapters. So we taught each other the books we were reading because we just wanted to read books faster. So, you know, you really have to be able to learn fast. Learn fast indeed. And uh, the startup world is really no joke. And I think that you've provided the listeners some really good information on things that they should consider before they, you know, are looking into starting their own startup or their own business. So Lydia, let's shift gears a little bit. So we know you and we know about Set Scouter, uh, but let's talk a little bit about Lydia pre-Set Scouter. More specifically, like growing up. Yeah. Um, I think I have a pretty weird story for Assyrians. I grew up, I was born and raised until I was 11 years old in a city called Almaty in Kazakhstan. Uh, we were an extremely close-knit Assyrian community. Um, everyone that I knew was my cousin. <laughs> At the point that we were leaving already, my mom was like, we have to leave. You have no one to be with here. Everyone is your cousin. <laughs> so um, we were an extremely close-knit community. And yeah, my family's incredible. I grew up with like aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas all around me. Uh, then we moved to Canada when I was 11. And we all moved to Canada together. And it was a weird, difficult time because, of course, starting from scratch again, 
you know, my mom was a university professor in Kazakhstan, uh, an interpreter at a government level, and had to come here and start from scratch. And she just said, I'm a teacher. I'm never not going to be a teacher. So um, she became a teacher here. And my dad, of course, struggled to keep the family afloat. So it was, it was an amazing educational experience. I am grateful because they always shielded me from any sort of struggle, actually. I still saw it, but I, it was never on my shoulders. My mom has this incredible way of making you feel absolutely safe, which I think is necessary for a kid's psyche to feel like he or she can take chances later on in life. So, yeah, my family is awesome, and we live in Toronto. Everyone's still in Toronto. And how, how did Kazakhstan come to be? Yeah. Because <laughs> this is probably such an interesting fact to people yeah. that there are Assyrians. Are there still Assyrians? Are your fa- is yeah, any part of your yeah, there are tons. There are not tons, okay. Like let it be known people, that there are Assyrians in Kazakhstan. So we truly are everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did Kazakhstan come to be? How did your parents go there? Did, yeah. Were they born there or did they immigrate nope. there? How did they start a life there in which you were kind of born and raised in? Yeah. In true Assyrian fashion, a little history lesson. We are uh, Urmujnaya, so we're from Urmi. Um, and by we, I mean uh, 1914. My family ran from Iran to not not just my family, a huge portion of the community, as probably people do know, Russian Assyrians. So Russia, of course, provided some support and had said that if Assyrians were to come onto their land, you know, there would be perhaps a piece of land for them there. So, of course, our nation believed it. We went to Russia. It was from Iran. We ended up in Georgia. And Georgia ended up being part of the USSR. So there was the revolution immediately Pretty much as soon as we got there, all plans were cast aside, and my family settled in Georgia. Uh, so my mom was actually born in Georgia on a vacation, but there's, it just goes to show that we have really strong ties with Georgia still. What ended up happening was, of course, tons of people died. My grandmother lost a lot of siblings. You know, there are all these, I grew up with these stories of, of you know, tons of family members just not surviving that trip. So they settled in Georgia. It was a really good country for them. Georgians are really similar to us in a lot of ways. So they settled there nicely. And then what happened was, you know, sometimes there is no sense to what the Soviet Union does to people. So they wanted to clean up house a little bit or something like that and leave the Georgians with the Georgians. And so they went and literally um, came into the middle of the night to my family's, to my ancestors, technically, my grandparents, uh, their parents, put them on a transport truck, took away all of their belongings, and brought them to Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan is a beautifully resource-rich country, but of course they just dropped them off in the middle of winter on the land. The stories I was told was that the Kazakh people were extremely kind. They took in Assyrians into their homes, uh, fed them, clothed them, allowed them to stay with them until they got you know, on their feet. But as a result, of course, I grew up there, I was born by the time that I was born, Russian culture was prevalent because it's the Soviet Union. Kazakhstan was part of the Soviet Union, a big part of it. Russian culture was everywhere. My grandparents actually still spoke Russian with an accent because their first language was Assyrian. They still, my grandfather still had trouble finding some words. So I grew up with these very Assyrian grandparents. You know, some of my first Assyrian words, unfortunately, because I say that because my brother's first language was Assyrian, not mine. Uh, but my grandmother taught me prayers in Assyrian and, and tried to teach me that way. So yeah, we ended up in Kazakhstan. I, I think it was, um, 
just over 100 families, all kinds of different ones. I, I recently realized that one of the women that we knew was Suryoya. Uh, because she did the F instead of the P, you know, and uh, we used to not understand why, but now it, it blows my mind that there were so many different kinds of Assyrians living in Kazakhstan and somehow ended up there. So it was a really fascinating place to grow up, and it was more fascinating for me, I think, than uh, I would say the Assyrians in the United States and Australia or in the Middle East, because to me, as a kid, I didn't realize there were so many other Assyrians. Like, we were on our own little island, completely separated from the rest of these. So sometimes we got magazines, and I would be in awe as a kid that there are people out in the world writing about Assyrian things and gathering. And we would, you know, this is before YouTube, somebody would bring a tape and put it in, and people would be dancing Shaykhane, and we would be like, oh my God, these are Assyrians in Australia dancing Shaykhane. It was crazy. So when we got here, of course, my mind was blown. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives me goosebumps and, and just understanding how our, uh, how our experiences are so similar yet so different depending on wherever we are in the world. A hundred families in Kazakhstan. And I'd say in Almaty. I think I'm getting it right. Almaty okay. being the city used to be the capital of Kazakhstan. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when your family had left, were many of the other families leaving as well? Mm-hmm. Um, when when we left Kazakhstan? Why you left Kazakhstan? Well, yeah, simple reasons. Uh, we lived well. Uh, but there, when you live well, you don't, you don't live securely. So, you know, my parents worked really hard. They were able to provide a decent life for us. Mm-hmm. But in Kazakhstan, or in any, many post-Soviet countries... Uh, there's no guarantee that what you have today is what you'll have tomorrow. It might be taken away by the government at any point. So I think it was a level of uh, a situation of security. Also, you know, I make a joke that there were not enough Assyrians around. Um, but my mom was genuinely concerned. She said that if we were to stay, what were our choices for continuing on with our own families? The idea was that essentially we were going to stop being Assyrians, you know, and a lot of my cousins, again, love them, but are half Russian, half Ukrainian. We've got Germans, we've got everyone in our family, but my immediate family, we're still fully Assyrian. So I think that there was a level of pride that my parents had with that, that they weren't just not letting, going to let go of. So yeah, it was, I think, a number of factors of uh, one of those. And then of course, education, Like I said, I wanted to be an actor, and, uh, well, I was not going to be an actor in Kazakhstan. (laughs) So, opportunity. Yeah. And how was the Assyrian community there with regards to, was there, um, like, a shotaputa, an organization Mm -hmm. of some sort, or was there a church or churches? How would people uh, gather together? How would they build community amongst one another? Uh, We had what was called the Assyrian Association of our own. We had no church, so the churches that we went to were Russian Orthodox, uh, which was generally in line with ourselves. I mean, we're Church of the East, so it makes some sense. But when it comes to our own holidays and festivals, we were honestly incredible. I look back and we were so scrappy. You know, we had our own organization. There were people at the top of that organization who loved being a Syrian. Um, some of my uncles, you know, um, all kinds of academics and business owners, like people really cared. And we did festivals. We participated, actually, uh, there's a famous, like, not famous, but an awesome tape we have where Kazakhstan threw an international sort of festival. 
and Assyrians opened it. We were we we opened the festival because they said this is the oldest nation that we have. And my aunt, yeah, my aunt was our choreographer, and we my brothers are both in that uh, in that number. I was too little, but yeah, we danced every week. We met uh, on Sunday. The Assyrian organization had their own little building. We met, and uh, it was so much fun. <laughs> So there were certainly opportunities for Assyrians to be able to congregate with one yes. another at least once a week. You know, I feel like so often within our different uh, cities or wherever the Assyrian communities are, church can sort of hold place into that, right? Where it's like the definite place where you can at least mm-hmm. see other Assyrians every Sunday. So given that there wasn't a church there where Assyrians could congregate, it is amazing to hear that there was at least another opportunity where they could consistently see one another as well as delve into being a Syrian and every aspect of it. That's amazing. And so you, your family came to Canada Mm -hmm. and you all moved to Toronto Mm -hmm. and settled in Toronto. How did Canada come about and Toronto specifically? Did you have family here or we had no one? one. We came, um, my mom, she would, uh, tutor, in the later years, she would tutor people who were applying for immigrant visas to English-speaking countries because her, her English is incredible. So she would tutor people and hear these stories. And my dad uh, pushed her a little bit and said, look, I mean, you're tutoring these people. They're getting accepted. We should just do the same thing. Canada came about. I, I think we had a few choices. I think Australia might have been one of them. But my parents uh, did their research and, uh, you know, they saw a nation that was open to immigrants. They knew that there were lots of Assyrians here. My brother was always on the internet, even in those days. Uh, you know, he's been on the computer since he's been 12. So he was already finding communities and things like that. So we did a really uh, straightforward, long, difficult, but straightforward immigration process where you go through interviews. My parents had to pass all the tests and they took us in as uh, landed immigrants. And, uh, you know, Canada was really good to us. I mean, Toronto, we came here because we knew that there was more opportunity. We were ready to work for it. And we knew that this is a place where if you work hard, you can achieve something. And thankfully, that's true. Uh, See. And your family, you have how many siblings? Two older brothers. Two older brothers. Okay. So three, three siblings altogether. Yes. Have they had an influence on you at all with regards to... Assyrian culture. Absolutely. I, if it wasn't for my brothers, I might have actually lost touch with Assyrian culture because my parents were just a little bit too busy and they just wanted me to be happy with my life. Whereas I think your siblings are not as easygoing. What happened was not that anyone pushed me into it at all. I actually only, uh, I'll tell you, I recently reinvigorated my uh, interest and my passion and love for being a Syrian, because I think there was a period of time where I was really focused on achieving and, and integrating into society well. But my brothers, the moment they went to university here, they joined AXU, so they became part of the student organization. And, and for the listeners who don't know what AXU is, it yeah. is essentially a Syrian, Syriac, Chaldean, Student Association Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Student yeah. Union of Canada. Yeah. Student Union yeah, of Canada. Yeah. I was actually <laughs> never part of it, so you can't blame me for not knowing. <laughs> yeah, My yeah. brothers were. Sure. And um, they were really active, and especially David, the middle brother. Once he graduated, he moved away a little bit. But George, 
always had, I think George, because he's the oldest and because he spent the most time with our grandparents, I think that the love for being a Syrian is very deep within him. And he always introduced me to music and he learned a little bit more Syrian himself and would try to teach me. You know, we had plane rides where we're just counting from one to 10 the whole plane ride. So I think George helped me keep my identity as far as being a Syrian goes and introduced me to a lot of amazing people. I mean, if I were to look at six degrees of separation, that's how I know you. So George helped me to meet a lot of Assyrian people who showed me that, you know, being Assyrian wasn't only sort of an organizational, structured situation. It was also people that are up to similar things as me and that I can share my experiences with, like true friends. So that was really nice. That's that's amazing, and uh, I gotta give props to George. That's that older sibling responsibility yeah, right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, he did, hope, he did good. Yeah, he did good. <laughs> so your your family had moved here and was exposed to the Assyrian community here, and you were also able to integrate within the community here. Mm-hmm. And so I think for George, for for your family really as a whole, he was able to continue that that love and passion mm-hmm. that he had. And how would how important would you say it is for Assyrians to be be able to live in an area or region that has a community? Hugely. Hugely. I think having seen what happens when you don't. I mean, in Kazakhstan, we were close-knit, but there were so few of us. When we met at our association, I mean, I'm ashamed and sad, but it's not like we spoke Assyrian the whole time. We spoke Russian mostly. I think it's really easy to lose our identity. I think people who grew up with it don't realize that it takes just a few people to stop trying and it will all fall apart. I mean, it sounds so dramatic, but I know it for myself. I mean, I could have completely moved away from being a Syrian. And I think that this might sound a little bit like our mother speaking in me right now, but I think women hold uh, an incredible place in this entire nation and in this situation. Because my mom always said, it's the woman who runs the family. And the family is what sets up the rest of our nation, right? And so I think we as women carry an extra, extra little bit of responsibility to create Assyrian uh, families. Uh, Maybe not from a sense that you must marry an Assyrian person, because genuinely everyone should find their own happiness in life. But to continue on the identity. That's all. Just to teach your children that they are Assyrian. I think I give props to my mom. I may not speak Assyrian as freely as the next person, but I surely know know what it means to be Assyrian. And I know what makes me different. And I know that there comes a certain level of responsibility in society to act appropriately so that when the next person says, oh, I've met an Assyrian person before, they have only good thoughts and good feelings about the person that they met. So yeah, I think there's a huge amount of responsibility on each and every one of us. And I think that when we start letting go of it little by little, we might just slip. What does being a Syrian mean to you? <laughs> well, on like an immature level, being special. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know what? It, it means responsibility, quite honestly. I think that we come from incredible ancestry. And for us to not act like one of the wisest, oldest nations in the world is a catastrophe. So being a Syrian means to me being proud, but not from an egotistical level, 
but from a a level of responsibility for the rest of the world honestly it's like we are the messengers of the past that's how i feel about being a syrian so what we stand for i think in my heart it matters to the rest of the world do you know what i mean like i don't mean that everyone's going to listen to what we have to say sadly that's not the case at all but what it does mean is that you always have to carry yourself with this idea at the back of your mind that what you are particularly bringing to the world is special and that your message to the world is is important so i think it means to me a certain level of certainly being different in the best possible way absolutely you talked about responsibility and i think so much of being a syrian because we don't have a place to that that we can physically say this is a syria the entire world recognizes yeah. this as a syria mm-hmm. and so it's a country that is uh creating all these resources to continue the preservation of language of culture of tradition of food of everything that we really take it amongst ourselves exactly. individually to upkeep those things and all yeah. it requires is one person to say hey i don't really want to do this or hey i'm tired of this hey i don't you know i have other things that i should be doing mm-hmm. and this isn't one of them that then leads whatever else is to come after that and and have that be affected as a result of of that decision so yeah it's, it's like butterfly effect and it's so prevalent in our small community yeah it really and and the idea of it could be stressful but <laughs> at the end of the day it's also so much of our history i mean we can look back on our ancestors and say like it is amazing that you and i can sit here mm-hmm. and we can still say that we are Assyrian mm-hmm. that we know Assyrians all over the world that we have a community here and that we are still practicing yeah everything and upkeeping yeah. our heritage yeah. like i think that's actually to answer your question what Assyrian means to me that's probably another huge part of it which is feeling like um you're you've got support worldwide like i think that coming into canada and saying knocking you know coming into the church and saying hi we're assyrian is truly all you need to say to be taken in and that is super special i think that's part of what assyrian is to me which is you belong to so many people in so many other parts of the world we, it's incredible like we we are we are so connected and i think just sometimes being in the presence of another assyrian is uh is obvious like there's a certain amount of just what they value is actually so obvious to you that you you feel like you're standing next to a brother or sister that's the feeling i get when i really connect with an assyrian who may not be related to me i'm like you could be my cousin you're right we you know and at the at the core of who we are we share similar values no matter where we are in this world and you know i don't know about you but i've certainly experienced that when i've gone to another person's house that may be in another country <laughs> yeah. and i'm like wow i really feel the hospitality yeah. that i would feel if i were in my own home if i were at my aunt's home or any other family member's home like this is amazing that there's something that's so special mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. that you can touch upon yeah. no matter where you are in the world yeah it's this connection unspoken connection yeah it's like that rosie malakiona quote which is i am a syria right yeah. and i was going to say about that i know that we talk a lot about it we say you know if one person stops doing something then that could ripple 
into, you know, our entire community being affected. And I don't want to just harp on people for not being activists, you know, because I am not <laughs> and I'm doing my own thing and tons of other people are just trying to do their own thing. But I believe being a Syrian doesn't necessarily have to be that you go out there and you, um, you know, you're an activist. It's just carry yourself with that in mind that you are representing a nation of people that need good representation. So you be that representation, you know, be moral, be kind, uh, help people achieve things. That's kind of what I meant by um, that responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think everyone has a role, right? There's a role to be played with within our community for every type of person. Yeah. Right? There is room for the activists. There is room for the business, you know, person. the scholars, yeah. the business people, whatever it is. And I think it's important to know that they, they do all play a role in our community. And it's what makes it vibrant. Vibrant, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Lydia, thank you so much for this interview. I really did, even though I know you on a friendship level, yeah. there's so many new things that I discovered about you just through this conversation. So you are absolutely a joy to be around. Your energy is infectious and for the speakers who would like to maybe get in touch with you, maybe hear more about your story, uh, maybe they have a business idea mm -hmm. and want to think about how they can sort of take it to the next level and want your opinion on it, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to toot my own horn to say that my advice is amazing, but I do help out a lot of other people. And I am sad to say that not many of them are Assyrian. So I really think that if someone has an idea you know, for business or anything like that, I'd be really happy to walk you through what I know to help you. So do get in touch with me. I guess Facebook is the best way. Lydia Bitunin on Facebook and then Lydia Bitunin on <laughs> Instagram and on Twitter, all the same. But yeah, do get in touch with me, guys. I, I love making you friends and I love talking any business ideas and I'd love to help out. If I can get back, I'd love to. <laughs>